Well, the kids are dismissed at this time, and uh, we'll be uh, beginning a new sermon series on the book of Psalms. Uh, we're just going to take select psalms, uh, the different types of psalms that are um, in the book of Psalms. And uh, this morning we're looking at imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory. Well, a soldier was in Iraq and he received really bad news from his girlfriend back home. Girlfriend said, hey, I'm going to break up with you. Would you please send your picture to me? Because I want to use that one, the picture that I gave to you because I want to use that for my engagement picture to someone else. Oh, man, this guy was heartbroken. And so all of his you know, friends in his platoon there, they, they knew that, and so they wanted to encourage him. And so they hatched this plan. They got all of their pictures of their own girlfriends, and they gave them to this guy to put in a box and send back, along with his girlfriend's picture, send it back to her along with this note. I'm sending back your picture to you. Please remove it and send it back. Uh, please remove it and send back the rest. For the life of me, I can't remember which one you are. <laughs> we love revenge, don't we? And we feel like uh, it comes naturally to us, and we feel like maybe God has some kind of revenge too, you know, kind of wrath, kind of judgment. Uh, for people, when they step out of line, sort of like Zeus with lightning bolts, he'll deliver what we deserve when we step out of line. And we get this picture from God from 14 imprecatory, imprecatory psalms and from 375 references to God's wrath in the Old Testament. These imprecatory psalms are calling down curses on God's enemies, if you will as penned by David or some of the other psalm writers. And so we, we, gotta, we have language in God's inspired word of this wrath, right? But is this what God is like? We just concluded a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount, where we learned from Jesus to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, to never seek revenge, to forgive others, to seek reconciliation, to walk the extra mile, to give your extra tunic, to be peacemakers, to follow in the very footsteps of Jesus, where he said, I did not come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. So then why do we read that God, at times, unleashed his anger and his wrath on the wicked and disobedient? And we think of Noah and the flood, in all the, the world that was destroyed, we think of Jericho and the conquest in the promised land where the Israelites went in and massacred all the enemy peoples. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah and burning of that city because of the wickedness. We think in the New Testament of Jesus overturning the tables. We think of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and they were, they were disciplined and punished for that. Um, we, we think of Revelation and how there's a future day of judgment and the war of Armageddon, and we think, all right, that's good, but how does that match up with the Sermon on the Mount teaching? Uh, David Guzik, in his commentary, wrote, Psalm 109 is a psalm of David, and it's thought of probably the strongest of the 14 imprecatory psalms, calling down curses upon his enemies. So let's look at Psalm 109 up here. 
Starts off in verse 8, and I'll skip to 6. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take the place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from the ruined homes. May a creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. Verse 19, may it be like a cloak wrapped around him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. I hope you feel very blessed and encouraged this morning. (laughs) So why is this language okay? And why is it justified? Why is it placed in God's holy word? Some people can often create a false dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is, of course, angry and, a kill, and he kills, and like, again, Zeus throwing lighten, lightning bolts on all who displease him. While the God of the New Testament is seen in Jesus, who loves, filled with grace and mercy, who forgives. We see the God of wrath and judgment on the one hand, and God of love and grace on the other. Two different gods. There have been heresies and false religions that you know, speak of two different gods or a less mature God, a more mature God. <clears throat> but we're told here in Scripture that um, there's only one God and he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what do we do with passages and images of God that we find in the Bible of his wrath, his judgment? Well, like the Rorschach test, you've heard of that before? You know, you go to a counselor and they throw up images like this. What do you see? And what you see will determine how you're thinking and how you view life and how you view others. In the same way, how we understand God of the Bible will determine how we view, view life or how we experience life will determine how we view God and understand God. For example, Paul Vitz, Paul Vitz, New York university professor. He studied 100 famous athletes, 100 famous atheists. Why did I say athletes? Atheists, many of whom are athletes. No, I'm kidding. 100 famous atheists. And he found the common thread between these 100 famous atheists. They all, 100 of 100, all hated their fathers because their fathers were distant or they're absent or they're abusive or they ridiculed and rejected them growing up or they're overly strict and controlling, absent from the family. So why in the world would these people trust in it some sort of heavenly father? Well, the answer is they wouldn't and they didn't. They were atheists. 
We may be orthodox in theology, but uh, drawn for a number of reasons to one side of God or the other, his love and grace or his justice and judgment. There's, a man, there's an author named Dane Ortland who graduated from my alma mater with his PhD, Wheaton College. Dane Ortland wrote this, some of us may have been raised in a rules-heavy rules environment that suffocated us with endless sense of not measuring up. And we'll be more drawn to the grace and mercy of Christ then. Others of us have grown up in a chaotic free-for-all and the structure of strong moral boundaries flowing from the commands of Christ may be especially attractive. Still others of us have been deeply mistreated by those who should have been our protectors in life. And we long for the justice and retribution of heaven and hell to make things right, to make God right all wrongs. This comes from his book, Gentle and Lowly. So different sides of God's nature appeal to different needs, different experiences, different outlooks. Before we tackle the difficult question of how we should understand God's wrath found in the imprecatory Psalms, let's first understand what God teaches us about our relationship with him from Psalm 109. By the way, this is going to be a two-parter, if not a three-parter sermon, because this topic of God's wrath is immense. First, we can learn from Psalm 109 that God gives us permission to be real with him, to be honest in our prayers and worship. Life can get really hard because it's filled with all kinds of injustices. And we all go through the grieving process at one time or another, and it's healthy to go through the grieving process. It's necessary. And if you know the grieving process, one of the, one of the stages would be that of anger. It starts off denial, and then there's anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And it can, they're not necessarily in that order, but anger is one of the necessary steps and stages in our grieving process. The imprecatory psalms and the psalms of lament give us the language a language from the psaltery to express our anger and pain and rejection and injustice, our confusion, our doubt, our loneliness. We can express them before God and God can take it. He wants us to be real with him. They help us to know that God understands us and he accepts us right where we are in our messiness, in our confusion, in our pain, and he will receive our complaints. Psalm 109 begins again, My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. Verse 2, For people are wicked and deceitful, have opened their mouths against me. They've spoken against me with lying tongues. Man, that, that's painful, isn't it? With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I'm a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. And David could have been thinking of King Saul, who he honored as the Lord's anointed king, the first king of Israel. But David at this time would have been running away from Saul, who was trying to kill David. Why? Because King Saul had become very threatened by David, seeing how God had blessed him one one thing after another, because of David's um, 
honor of God. For example, David slew Goliath, and all of Israel celebrated David. And I'm sure that King Saul thought, man, this guy's going to inherit my throne. He became threatened. And because of Saul's paranoia and fear of losing the throne, he dedicated his best of his time, his energy, and resources to tracking down David and ending his life. And without God's protection, David would have been toast. He, he was at a much less, he, he was at a, um, uh, what's the word? He and his band of men would have been misfits, you know. They, they would have been at a great disadvantage. They would have been great underdogs compared to Saul and his vast army trying to track him down. And I wonder if you ever feel like you're being hunted down and that you're a great underdog from the enemies of illness, the enemies that are pursuing you of relational issues, the enemy of temptation and habits and addictions, maybe the enemy of injustice, a rejection, the enemy of fear. We, need, we can be real with God. Psalm 109 teaches us that we can cry out to God for his mercy and justice. He wants us to be real with him. He's listening to us. He cares. David Guzik wrote, many of us think that real Christian maturity is when we come to a place where we are somewhat independent of God. We think of God as a parent that we eventually outgrow. And once we're spiritually mature and once we've overcome certain obstacles in our life, then we can shake God off just like the same way that we shook off our parents and our constant need for them parenting us. We're now adults now. We're now mature. We're on our own. We're strong. The idea is, Guzek says, that we have to we have our acts so together that we don't need to rely on God so much from day to day, from moment to moment. But this isn't Christian maturity at all. God deliberately engineers debilitating circumstances into his, his people's lives so that they would, would be in total dependence on God's grace and strength. He is sovereign. He's in control, even in the midst of our weaknesses and our defeats. So we can learn that we can be real with God. And these psalms like this, the 14 psalms and many other passages remind us that we can be real with God. Secondly, David entrusted all vengeance to God. David refused to retaliate. You know, David rightly petitioned God for his justice. Unleash your justice on the injustice. David left them, though, to God. He refused to take them on himself and pursue retaliation on his own. He took King Saul off of his hook and placed him on God's hook. And we can trust that God's justice will be perfect. It'll be fair, unlike our emotional outbursts in our, um, in our I don't know, outbursts. Verse 20, may this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil against me. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake, out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. 
for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object scorned to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. He concludes, help me, Lord, my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand that you, Lord, have done it. You see how David is casting all of his concerns, his, his burdens, his, his injustices, just giving them to God, saying, Lord, I can't deal with this. It's too heavy for me. I, you take it. You deal with it. David refused to retaliate. Rather, he entrusted all judgment to God. On, one, on more than one occasion, uh, David could have ended King Saul's life as if God had delivered Saul right into the hands of David. For example, one of those times when King Saul, pursuing him with the armies, he had to relieve himself. And so he went into the privacy of a cave, and understandably his men remained outside. But he walked deep into this cave unknowingly, uh, unbeknownst to him. David and his men were just around the corner in the darkness back there. And, and David could have used his knife just to go, and end all his misery and, and be the next king that he was promised by the prophet some years earlier. But David said, no, I'm not going to lay a finger on the Lord's anointed. It's not up to me to seek revenge. It is up to God, my Lord. So what David did was he cut a corner of King Saul's robe so that when, Paul, when Saul left the cave, David could confront him with a corner. He said, I could have ended your life, Saul, but just to show you that I honor you as the Lord's anointed, I did not take your life. Even then, David felt incredible guilt for cutting the corner of the king's robe. David is described as a man after God's heart. He was a man filled with mercy and filled with grace. Unless, of course, the Lord commanded him to go out with his men and fight wars. I'm talking about his personal sense of revenge and retaliation. 1,000 years after the time of David, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ would come into the world. Emmanuel, God is with us in Jesus. Jesus would have been called the son of David, and he would perfectly reveal the heart of God. We read in Colossians 1.15, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John 14.9, anyone who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. John 10.10, 10, I and the Father are one. What is God like? You need to look at Jesus to realize what God is like. We need to understand God in the light of his complete revelation found in his son. Jesus went to the cross. Why did he go to the cross? For God so loved the world that he sent his son. He became our atoning, this is love, he became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we, we look at this next, next picture, you know, I'm, I was probably wanting to go into art when I was younger, and so... 
you know, that's the best I could do. You know, we look, we look at who God is not primarily in the Old Testament. You know, we get a good, we get a picture of God in the Old Testament, but it's the same God in the New Testament. And as we look through the cross, the complete fulfillment of, of God's revelation to us of who God is, we see what God is really like. We look through the cross. And rather than look at the cross as something miserable, oh, I can't believe, what injustice. We see the justice of God even through the cross. And it helps us view life in the way God intends for us. Let me explain it this way. The great evangelist Charles Spurgeon pointed out that in four, the four gospel accounts, 89 chapters, there's only one place where Jesus clearly speaks of his heart. Only one passage, and it's found in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and humble in heart. People are thinking, yeah, he's gentle, he's loving, but he's also just. He's also filled with wrath. The clearest picture of God is in Jesus, filled with grace, gentleness, and humility. In Romans 2, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Luke 19, Jesus wept over those who were trying to end his life, over Jerusalem. He wept over them. John 3.17, Jesus came not to condemn, but to save the world. Dane Ortland goes on, he says, The dominant theme in the Gospels is that the Holy Son of God moves toward and touches and heals and embraces and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Jesus' deepest impulse, he writes, is most naturally uh, is mo his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. The Old Testament Jews operated under this sophisticated system of degrees of uncleanliness. They avoided unclean people for fear that they would be contaminated by the sin. They said, no, 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 don't get near those lepers. No, 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 they can't come into God's holy temple. They, they, will, they will contaminate us. They, they will make us unclean. And they had all these rules and rituals to bring cleanliness back to themselves. And Jesus was the cleanest person to ever walk on the face of the earth. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanliness of his heart and mind. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was his first response when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. In other words, he came to reverse the Jewish system. When Jesus, the chosen one, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. And that's what he calls us to do. Go into the world and represent him. Go in the world and be his witnesses, be his hands and feet of compassion. 
How can we show God's compassion to our community? Um, we have an upcoming event that is one of three things we're doing that we are coining as all church outreaches, all church working and serving together. And for the first time in the fourth year, for the first time though, we're making trunk or treat an all church event, not just for the children's department or for the youth department, but it's all church event. We want all hands on deck here. Um, we can have parking lot attendance. It's going to be bigger. You know, we, last year we served like four or 500 community kids and their families, many of whom appear to be on church. This year, we're going to celebrate All Saints Day trunk or treat instead of Halloween. And, and we're going to, um, from the beginning of the trunk or treat out in the parking lot, all the way around the horseshoe, we're going to tell the story, God's story, beginning from Genesis to his second coming. Revelation. And inside, we're going to funnel people inside the hallways of the church so they get a glimpse of being inside a church building if they'd never been in a church before. And we're going to welcome them back for the following Sunday after All Saints Day. Uh, and we'll design a, a worship service that will be geared for those who are visiting and checking us out. So be praying about that. Um, and also partner with us. Don't say it's someone else's deal, you know. Some of you can't, I'm sure, because you have your own plans, but uh, we want all hands on deck for all who would be available to be a blessing to our community and communities as they come in from all around to do this trunk or treat. We want to represent Jesus to them and be the hands and feet and voices of encouragement to our community members. Well, I'm done with my sermon this week. This is where I'm going to stop. But one question is looming. What do you do about all these psalms of wrath and judgment in all the instances of God's references toward the wrath of God in the Old Testament and New Testament? What do you do with those? What does that say about God? Did it make any difference from Old to New Covenant? We're going to finish in two Sundays. Next week, R.J. Bacani from Covenant Cedars will be joining us, and he'll be preaching, and we're excited about that, and you'll hear a lot more, a lot about our camping ministry, of, of whom many of our women are now enjoying a women's retreat up there in Nebraska. So he'll be with us uh, next week, and then two weeks we'll conclude, I think, this sermon series on God's wrath. And there's, believe me, there's a lot more to say on this. Uh, so if, if you have questions, that's good. That's good, because we'll struggle with them, and if you have any thoughts, send them my way too, because as I prepare for two weeks from now, um, we'll conclude, um, what do we do about this love-wrath dichotomy, all right? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for um, your Psalm um, 109 and these song, psalms that uh, give us language that we can have permission to be real with you, Lord, in our worship. We don't have to be fake. We don't have to put on your, the holy smile. Uh, we could be real with you and we could cry out to you, Lord, for justice. And secondly, Lord, we thank you that we can replace the heaviness and, and the injustice and we can cast it upon you, Lord. And you'll be fair. You'll be just. Uh, you'll be holy. And, and you'll take care of our, of our issues, Lord. We, we thank you for your faithfulness. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray if there are any who are carrying burdens right now or sense of injustice or pain or rejection, 
I pray, Lord, that this morning they will cast all their cares upon you, that you will relieve the burdens that we're carrying as we hand them off to you and trust you with our futures and with, our, um, with issues of reconciliation. And so, Lord Jesus, we, we offer you ourselves anew once again this morning. Ask you to fill us with your spirit. Forgive our sin. Set us free. Amen.